0: He kō nā, e nā te irirangi o Aotearoa. Kia ora, mai haramai kito huru huru. Welcome to Our Changing World, ko and The first ever New Zealand government-funded space mission is set to take flight next year. The Methane Sat Project involves sending a satellite into orbit to detect methane emissions around the globe. It's led by the US-based Environmental Defence Fund, but also supported by the New Zealand government to the tune of $26 million, and it involves scientists and engineers from Niwa and the University of Auckland. Science journalist Peter Griffin caught up with the key local players who'll be spearheading New Zealand's methane-sat efforts.
1: You can't see or smell it, but methane is contributing to global warming much more than we
0: realize.
2: The US, EU and Japan will announce a commitment to clean up methane emissions tied to the extraction and transport of oil and gas.
0: Methane is 80 times more potent than carbon, and it accounts for nearly half, half of the net warming we're experiencing now. So cutting methane by at least 30% by 2030 can be our best chance to keep within reach of 1.5 degrees Celsius target.
3: That was United States President Joe Biden at the COP27 climate summit in Egypt last month, reconfirming the voluntary global methane pledge signed at the previous summit. That sees over 100 countries, including New Zealand, undertake to cut human-caused methane emissions by 30%, by the end of this decade. To make that target, we'll need a much greater understanding of where methane emissions are actually coming from. Leaks in oil and gas pipelines account for a large component of emissions and are the target of the MethaneSat project. But New Zealand is piggybacking on the mission with our own methane project in mind. I went to NIWA's Greta Point headquarters in Wellington to meet Dr. Sarah Mikoloff fletcher who leads the MethaneSat Research Project. I started by asking her why our own government would spend $26 million on helping put a satellite into space.
2: Well, there are two reasons to get involved with the satellite program. One is just to develop capacity in New Zealand to do this kind of work and develop that on-the-ground capacity to encourage students to get involved in this type of work and to develop a rich, connected, vibrant research community. And then once you say you want to do that, a natural thing for New Zealand to lead on and to work on is agricultural greenhouse gas emissions. That's long been a place that we see as our leadership space in the global community, someplace where we can make a real contribution. Now the original scope of the methane sat mission was really focused on fossil fuel methane emissions. So fossil fuel methane emissions are an emission where it's sort of seen that there are really no losers to reducing those emissions. Because unlike CO2, CO2 is emitted because you've driven your car and through the planned combustion process, CO2 is a byproduct of that. But methane emissions from fossil fuels, they're mostly emitted by accident. They're emitted from leaks in pipelines and blowouts at factories and where the methane is produced. So if you know exactly where those leaks are, you can go fix them and there's very little cost. So the international team is really focused on developing those applications around fossil fuel emissions. And where the New Zealand Science Program is um, focused is on developing the capability of using the satellite to also do agricultural emissions. And that's the area where New Zealand will lead.
3: We know that agriculture is responsible for half of our greenhouse gas emissions and methane makes up the biggest portion of that agricultural component. But what's the big problem with methane?
2: Methane is uh, has a very str- high global warming potential. So when you put methane into the atmosphere, it can warm the atmosphere. It's very potent in warming the atmosphere. But it also has a shorter lifetime than carbon dioxide. So it only stays in the atmosphere for about a decade. Whereas C, when you put it into the a- CO two, when you put it into the atmosphere, it can stay there for hundreds or even thousands of years. So it's a bit of a trade off. Now, it's a really opportune time to be thinking about how we can reduce our methane emissions because of the fact that we've left things so very long in reducing our overall greenhouse gas emissions. So if you think about how can I quickly reduce my greenhouse gas emissions over the next 100 years, then CO2 is going to be the most important thing. And ultimately, there's no way to have anything like a habitable world without tackling our CO2 emissions. However, if you're thinking about how quickly things are moving and how you can reduce emissions quickly, there's a strong argument to be made for including methane in that first tranche of work. Because over the next 20 years, methane that we emit today is going to warm the atmosphere 85 times as much as an equivalent amount of CO2.
3: Yeah, in fact, scientists have detected a spike in methane emissions globally in the last 15 years or so. Do we know what's behind that?
2: Yeah, so methane emissions uh, were pretty flat over the decade of the 1990s and the early 2000s, but they started to rise rapidly in around 2007. What we know from the atmospheric measurements is that the methane emissions are, that increased methane emission, it seems to have started in the tropics. So the tropical regions are very important drivers of that methane emission, whatever it is, and measurements of isotopes of methane, which is sort of different flavors of methane that can tell you a little bit about the process of how that methane was formed. Um, Measurements of those isotopes tell us that those emissions were somehow biological. And within that, there are a couple of different suspects being um, ruminant animals, so cows and sheep, agriculture, rice, agriculture, and wetlands. Any of those could have been involved. And then there's probably an, a role also for fossil em- emissions in the Northern Hemisphere. Maybe about on the ballpark of 30% of that's going to be Northern Hemisphere fossil emissions.
3: When we detect this methane in the tropics, are we talking about things like rice production, rice paddy fields?
2: So wetlands is a potential culprit, rice paddy, or growing agriculture in developing worlds.
3: Now, what's actually involved in getting methane sat into space? It clearly takes a lot of careful planning and coordination because it's not the only satellite going up on that rocket, is it?
2: Launching the satellite through SpaceX is a little bit like riding the bus. So you get to a certain height and then everybody gets off the bus at the same time. Uh, and then you need to move to a different point in the orbital because otherwise you're very likely to get whacked by one of those, the, the, so you're sort of in the middle of a swarm of satellites and you, you don't want to get whacked by another satellite just after you've launched, right?
3: So fingers crossed, methane sat makes it safely into orbit. How do you then go about measuring an invisible gas like methane from hundreds of kilometers away in space?
2: So what you do is you measure the outgoing so, solar radiation. So light comes to Earth from the sun. Um, it passes through our atmosphere. It hits the ground. It bounces back out again. And while it's in Earth's atmosphere, the greenhouse gases that are in the atmosphere interact with that light. And each individual greenhouse gas has sort of a fingerprint of which light wavelengths of that light they absorb. And um, so what you do is you measure the light on the way out, and you know the solar radiation very well. And you can use that to estimate how much methane was in the atmosphere or other greenhouse gases.
3: MethaneSat is a pretty unique project. It's the first satellite launch largely funded by a charitable organisation. Not only is the US-based Environmental Defence Fund paying around $140 million for the satellite to be built and launched, it will also, where necessary, fund projects on the ground to actually tackle the emissions methane sat has detected.
2: And, you know, that's quite important for in the agricultural space because we're not talking about necessarily giant corporations who don't care about pollut, You know, we're talking about people who need to feed their families, especially if we're going to look not just in developed nations, but the satellite will also look in the developing world. And so if you'd like to ask people to reduce their emissions from the ways that they produce food in the developing world, it's... Awfully important to have some funding and a plan in place for how they can do that.
3: The satellite will look at things all over the world as it orbits the earth, oil and gas fields, agricultural areas across the world. But how much of New Zealand is it likely to see?
2: I think that's kind of special in that it has a big field of view, not global, but a big field of view. So the field of view is 200 kilometres by 200 kilometres. So you can cover most of New Zealand's big agricultural regions with about four methane-sat targets. Um, And then within that, it scans at very high spatial resolution. So the native resolution is around 100 by 400 meters spatial resolution. And so then within that, you can map the methane in that big box to the spatial resolution that then allows you to go back and pick out, you have a general idea where your agriculture is, You can pick out exactly where those agricultural emissions are.
3: The reality is that New Zealand has very good capability already measuring emissions from our agriculture. We know where the cows and sheep are. So the real value in looking at New Zealand with methane sat is actually to validate our measurements from other sources here, such as NIWA's ground-based climate monitoring stations. If Sarah and her colleagues can show that the satellite is accurately measuring methane emissions, they can trust what it tells them about the levels of methane from agriculture in parts of the developing world where, in many cases, ground monitoring isn't in place.
2: But the New Zealand project also has the role of defining the global strategy of where the satellite will look. So it'll collect 20 to 30 targets a day. A lot of those will go to fossil emissions targets um, but then we'll get a share for agricultural targets and we have a say in what the, what the best agricultural targets to look at will be. And that'll include um, some targets in the developing world where you can, it's a, it's a nice place to look in that you, so little is known about the emissions often that you can easily add value with any information you have It's going to add value. But also in a lot of places in the developed world. So we'll look a lot in the U.S. and Canada, Europe, you know. And these are, these are also places where uh, policy action is a bit easier and places where you can, again, do proof of concept studies.
3: How soon after methane sat has settled into its orbit will you start getting useful intelligence from it about those methane levels around the world?
2: Right after it's placed in orbit, we'll get what's called the first look data. And that data will be available very, very quickly, where the satellite just quickly captures um, as many high-priority targets as we dare to do. Because, again, we have that situation where like we're in the swarm of satellites. So how long we stay there? So I'm glad it's, it's going to be a high-pressure call. I'm kind of glad it's not my call to make. How long you stay and get those first-look targets before you then start to move into your final, your ultimate Orbit, so and then you have the orbital raising that will take some time, and then you have a bit of a shakedown once the satellite's in that orbit, which will take some time before you're getting regular data. But you'll have that first batch of data you can work we can work with right away.
3: What are you actually presented with when you put all of this data together on your computer here at Niwa?
2: Yeah, so you have a map of methane, and that map is the total amount of methane in the air column between the top of the atmosphere and the surface of the earth, right? And so that's a little different from the number you actually want if you want to do policy. The number you want if you want to do policy is the emissions, not the amount that's in the atmosphere. So that's where the modeling comes in. We use high-resolution atmospheric transport models to take those observations of methane in the air column and work out where the air came from before they reached that point and then what the emissions must have been.
3: Now, there are other satellites circling the Earth tasked with detecting methane emissions. One of them is Sat, currently up there doing exactly that. What's the difference between them and MethaneSat? Right.
2: Well, if you, if you kind of picture like a spectrum of satellites, you have on one side of that spectrum, your global satellites, global mapping satellites. And those satellites, they look everywhere, um, but usually with a lower precision and a very low spatial resolution. So they look you get a, an average methane over a relatively big block of space. And then um, those smaller satellites like Greenhouse GHGSat that you mentioned and Carbon Mapper, they look over very small areas. So here you're looking at areas that are around tens of kilometers, and they scan at a very ho- much higher spatial resolution. And what those satellites are quite good for is if you already have a pretty clear picture of where your emissions are and you'd like to pick out within that region exactly where they are. Like if you want to go fix a problem. Right. Um, and then the global satellites are good for global studies and understanding what's going on on continental scales. Methane that's in the middle. We've got a big box, 200 kilometers by 200 kilometers. So you don't need to know exactly where the emissions are. You need to know generally where you're likely to have emissions. And within that, we're be, going to be able to map those, that, those, that methane at a very high spatial resolution, at the kind of spatial resolution that you need to be able to really do policy work and know exactly where those emissions are, who's responsible, and talk to the people who are involved.
3: While Sarah and her colleagues at NIWA wait to get their hands on methane sets' observational data, Chris Jackson, Missions Operation Director at Tupunaha Atea, the Space Institute at the University of Auckland, is gearing up to take control of methane sat once it's in orbit. While the satellite itself is being built and launched in the US, New Zealand company Rocket Lab, which does its own smaller satellite launches from the Mahia Peninsula, will initially take control of methane sat and several months later hand over to the Mission Operations Control Centre at the Space Institute. Chris, where are you at in terms of preparing for the methane sat launch, which is hopefully in October
1: 2023? So at the moment, we're really just getting the facility up and running. So um, the University of Auckland has had a, um, a, a program called uh, APSS, the Auckland Program for Satellite Systems or Space Systems, uh, for a few years, which is a student-led program. That launched its first mission at the end of 2020. Um, so... We were setting up the mission. We were setting up mission control centre for that uh, that mission. Um, Unfortunately, that was not successful, so um, we we don't support that at the moment. But we're currently building up the facility to support MethaneSat and also to support some other um, missions that we're building at the moment. So the institute is is currently building two uh, CubeSat missions, three U CubeSat missions. Um, We also have proposals in. Um, and working with other parts of New Zealand industry to um, support and, and build other space missions to, to support New Zealand, for for example, uh, water monitoring and, and, um, and things like that.
3: Is it a major operation to run a mission operation centre for a satellite?
1: People, people think about NASA and, you know, big, big rooms full of loads of people and, and lots of computers and monitors and all this other fun stuff. I guess the reality these days is, is maybe a little bit different. Although you know, fundamentally that is what we also have at Auckland. You know, we have a, a, a reasonably large room, not so many people, um, some big monitors, and, and that sort of thing for visualization of, of what's happening. Rocket Lab have fundamentally the same sort of thing. Again, they can have lots of people in there, and. There are a couple of others. Um, I suspect the, the New Zealand Defence Force already also has something. I know DTA um, do a, do a little bit of this sort of thing, and, and probably there are a few other organisations around that that have a facility to operate satellites. But the reality these days is you don't need these big facilities. You know, we'll be able to operate methane effectively with a, um, you know, a laptop, and I'll be able to do it from home sort of thing, you know, with the appropriate security arrangements, et cetera. So, you don't need these big mission operation centres that, that we sort of see at, at NASA and we see on TV with you know the European Space Agency and the likes. Technically, what's actually involved in monitoring and controlling methane sat
3: once it's in orbit?
1: Methane sat will be flying around about 550, 570 kilometres above Earth um, in what's called a sun-synchronous orbit. And, and what this fundamentally means is that the, the satellite um, goes... Roughly north south, over the South Pole, up over the North Pole, and, and back around. It does that sort of 14, 15 times every day. Um, while it's doing that, of course, the Earth's rotating underneath it, um, so it, it, it sees the whole of the globe around approximately every 24 hours. Um, we'll use a, an array of ground stations or a network of ground stations around the world to communicate with the spacecraft. Each of these contacts, so when the satellite passes over New Zealand, for example, it's only around about ten minutes long. That contact period is only around about ten minutes long. Um, the satellite itself is moving at around about seven and a half kilometres a second. So it you know it goes up over the country here in, in around about that ten maybe twelve minutes uh, of duration. We'll be able to contact it using ground stations here in New Zealand, and there's there's one that we'll be using for methane sat down in Awarua near Invercargill. Um, but we'll also use a, a network of ground stations around the world. There's some in the United States, uh, South Africa, a very prominent station in a place called Svalbard, which is um, sort of near the very near the North Pole. It's the most northern um, inhabited um, location on Earth, um, and that's um, a Norwegian company that runs that. So we'll be tapping into all those ground stations to allow us to... Uh, contact the spacecraft around about 20 to 25 times per day each time for around about 10 minutes and during those times we'll be able to upload commands to uh, command it to to do things such as um, take an image or to um, you know maybe fire the thrusters to to move the orbit a little bit Um, but we'll also be able to download the the mission data you know this this MethaneSAT itself is all about getting methane data down Um, so we'll be able to download that data from the payload as well and and, you know there's an awful lot of data that comes down in those uh, 20 to 25 contacts per day.
3: What control do you have over MethaneSAT? I know these satellites have little thrusters so you can actually move them around in their orbit to some degree, will that be on the cards for MethaneSAT?
1: So there's a few things that we control on the spacecraft so you know the, the routine operations really is about keeping the mission running. So you know that, that, so methane sat has a, a, effectively a camera on board. That camera is a special camera that you know, uh, has technology there to, to take images of, of methane plumes, for example. So you know, we'll be able to schedule up images and, and schedule up the, the contacts to bring that data back down to the ground. But yes, uh, we will move the orbit regularly. So even at 550-odd 500, kilometres above Earth, Um, There's a small amount of residual atmosphere at that altitude and what that means is we actually have drag on the satellite. So while I I was talking about a minute ago that the um, the satellite's moving at 7.5 kilometres a a second, it it does interact with the Earth's atmosphere at that altitude and it slows down just a little bit. And if we left it over a period of a year or two, it would start to come closer to the Earth's atmosphere and that that drag becomes more significant and ultimately what happens is it burns up on on re-entry into the atmosphere. So we will routinely be firing the thrusters on board the spacecraft just to boost it back up just that little bit, just to compensate for that drag. Um, we'll also um, be firing the thrusters to manage what's called conjunction alerts. So you know, we're all aware these days that you know space is becoming a busy place. And while there's a lot of space up there and a lot of room, there are organisations around these days that monitor the space um, situational awareness, the space traffic, and they will alert operators like ourselves to uh, potential conjunctions where two satellites come very close to each other and may potentially hit each other. And we may make some small maneuvers to try and um, reduce the probability of those collisions.
3: Is there a point in the process of launching sat, getting it into orbit and checking all the systems where you'll be able to go, phew, everything's working this isn't going to be an expensive failure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you can ever do that, but um, yeah, I mean, I've been in the space industry for 25, 30 years now um, and worked on God knows how many missions. So um, there's, there's always things that go wrong. And, and as I said before, you know, space is a pretty harsh place and, and um, you know, there's always things that will go wrong. MethaneSat is being built by, a, you know, a company that's got a lot of heritage in building satellites. So, you know, we have every confidence that the satellite will work and, and will operate. Along the way, you know, there's always a bit of a journey and, you know, the world's a bit of a funny place at the moment. You know, buying um, silicon chips that go into spacecraft is is pretty hard. So, you know, unfortunately, that means there are some delays with every program. Most of the companies that I'm I'm talking to around the world are seeing delays because of that. We're working systematically through the spacecraft with the manufacturer in the United States and with Rocket Lab here in New Zealand um, to... Um, to, to get the spacecraft onto the launch pad and and into orbit, and um, the first few days after launch, or the launch itself, and the few, first few days after launch are always a say a nail biting moment. You know that that that's obviously a a critical phase, and and a you know sticking a satellite on top of you know hundreds of tons of of, of high explosives and pushing the big red button is um, is is always a dodgy moment, sort of thing. There's a lot that can go wrong there, and and the rockets you know have a or something like that, you know, statistical chance of of blowing up. So, you know, that's always uh, probably one of the most risky parts of of any space mission. But um, otherwise, you know, we're pretty confident things will work okay.
3: Back at NIWA, Sarah is eager to get her hands on data from MethaneSat that will add to the extensive methane ground and air measurements already used to populate her models. Haven't we got enough data to get cracking on with this whole goal of reducing methane emissions by 30% by 2030. How much more data do we actually need?
2: You're never going to interview a scientist and have them tell you that they don't need more data. (laughs) Has that ever happened to you? (laughs) (laughs) Um, This question comes up a lot. How much will satellites change everything? How much can you do from satellites? And how much is research going to move from what you know on the ground to what you can see from space? And I, ne- I don't think that we're ever going to solve all our problems with satellites alone. I think ground-based measurements will also be always be at the core for what we understand about greenhouse gases, um, For partly because the measurements at the surface are so much more sensitive to local emissions and local uptake. And so those will always be really important. But satellites open up a whole new world in being able to capture like a spatial mapping, you're just never going to get from instruments you're going to put on the ground. You're never going to have, you know, an analyzer every 100 by 400 meters over an agricultural region in New Zealand that's 200 kilometers on a side. You would never do that. It would be outrageously expensive and hard to maintain. But we can get that kind of spatial resolution from a satellite. And with these two types of measurements working together in partnership, you can do a whole heck of a lot. And I think
0: that's the way of the future. The government announced in early December that MethaneSat's launch has been delayed until at least October 2023. The time frame has changed, but the mission remains the same, said Research, Science and Innovation Minister Aisha Beryl. So we'll have to wait a little longer for the methane-detecting eye in the sky to do its thing. Thanks to Peter Griffin, who produced this episode, and to the people he spoke to, Dr. Sarah Mikola Fletcher, Principal Scientist at NIWA, and University of Auckland Mission Operations Centre lead, Chris Jackson. This episode was sound engineered by William Saunders. Thanks to Our Changing World Assistant Producer, Ellen Rikers, for her work on the show, and Tim Watkin is Executive Producer of Podcasts and Series at RNZ. The show's website is at rnz.co.nz slash where you can find more info and pictures and our extensive back catalogue or find us on Twitter or Facebook where we are at RNZ Science. You can also find the Hour Changing World podcast on all the regular podcast apps. So do follow the show on your favourite one. RNZ has an incredible range of excellent podcasts on all manner of topics, whether you're into true crime, comedy, politics, history or arts and culture. You can check them out via the podcast and series tab on the main RNZ website or have a look on your usual podcast app. Thanks so much for listening. From me, Claire Cunningham. have a great week. Kia pai, wiki.